I invite you to take a copy of God's Word in hand. Please take a Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the pew rack, you can find today's passage on page 571. For the next two weeks, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 on Sunday morning. This week, verses 1 through 7. Next week, verses 8 through 13. Now, if you're new to the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 6 is when he is called into the ministry of the prophet. Um, and it's when he receives directly from God his call to be God's spokesman to God's people. And you might say, well, that's, that's kind of odd. Seems like if you're going to be a prophet, you should start. That should be chapter 1, not chapter 6. And other prophets and writing prophets, they begin with their call to ministry um, and how the Lord set them apart. Isaiah has intentionally arranged his material. The first five chapters, he's giving an overview of largely the message God gave him for God's people. And then after giving that message, um, he then relates his call, which in some way sums up the message and then also is the launching point into the rest of the chapters. It's a very long book. Um, and the vision that Isaiah receives from the Lord, and this is what sets him apart from ministry, is what we're going to look at this morning. The vision itself, for us as Christians today, it's a blessing to us. It, it really does shape our devotion to the Lord. It really does inform our worship, and it, it gives us a backbone as believers um, the encouragement that we see here in Isaiah's vision of the Lord on the throne. Because in that vision, we come to see that we serve a sovereign, holy, atonement-making God. So, before we read God's Word, would you join me in praying that God would show us that in His Word this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of truth, and I thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture. We thank you for the ministry of Isaiah. We thank you for your word. It gives us precepts, promises, directions, and light. So this morning we ask that through the reading and proclamation of your word, we may learn more of Christ and by the Spirit be enabled to embrace the truth and have grace to follow it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, 
Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write eternal truth on all our hearts. Last fall, my family, we took a trip to the Upper Peninsula. And on the trip, we spent a couple days at Porcupine Mountain State Park. And while we were there, we drove up several times to the Lake of the Clouds Overlook. Now, the Lake of the Clouds is where the Carp River flows into a valley between two ridges in the Porcupine Mountains. And there it forms a lake that appears to be floating in the clouds, depending on your perspective. One afternoon, we were up there and we nearly had the entire overlook to ourselves. There was only four other people there. And, of course, we were all there with our phones out, taking pictures of the valley, of the mountains in the distance, of the trees as they were changing from green to orange to red and yellow. It was beautiful. It was, you know, we overuse this word probably, but it was, it was awesome. It was breathtaking. And then in the distance, we heard a low rumble. It got louder. And then it got louder. And then it turned into a roar. And before we knew it, there flying into the valley were two fighter jets. I'm not making this up. This really happened. Two fighter jets. And we're at the overlook, and they're coming at eye level. And then they begin to do maneuvers over the lake of the clouds. And I had my phone in my hand taking pictures, and I couldn't capture it. I was just completely overwhelmed in the moment. Overwhelmed by, by what I saw, overwhelmed by what I heard, overwhelmed by what I was feeling in that moment. Isaiah, in his vision, he's, he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by what he sees. He sees the throne of God. He's overwhelmed by, by the voice he hears of the seraphim and what he feels. It, it, he's experiencing the vision in such a way that it feels like the very foundation is trembling. I like to imagine that one day, Isaiah and I sitting in the new heavens and new earth around a campfire, and I'm sharing my story about the lake of the clouds. And Isaiah just kindly and graciously reminds me and says, that was nothing. Absolutely nothing. See, that's, that experience, it, it makes for a really nice family memory. I think it makes for a decent sermon illustration. Um, but it's way different than what Isaiah experienced. He saw the Lord on his throne. He saw the one who formed the oceans and sculpted the mountains with his word. 
And Isaiah has a vision of him. That's life-altering. It's life-transforming. It's more than a pretty cool memory from a family vacation. It, it redirects the entire course of his life. And we have chapter after chapter of Isaiah's ministry after he encountered the Lord. And so he, he gives it to us. He, he writes it down for us. He relays this message so that, well, for a couple reasons. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he includes this experience so that his readers will know that Isaiah doesn't speak for himself. That he has seen God and God has set him apart as his spokesperson. But there's another reason why Isaiah relays to us this vision. Is that he desires God's people to encounter the same God he saw. And that their lives would be forever transformed by the Holy One of Israel. So throughout his book, Isaiah's favorite title for God is the Holy One of Israel. 39 times in the Old Testament, we see that title for God. 26 times it's coming from the pen of Isaiah. He was overwhelmed it transformed his life. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 here of chapter 6. I got three sections for us this morning. In verses 1 through 3, I want us to see when Isaiah was overwhelmed by holiness. And then in verses 4 through 5, we see Isaiah overwhelmed by sin. And then in verses 6 through 7, Isaiah is overwhelmed by grace, holiness and, and grace. Verses 1 through 3, he begins with a, a time stamp for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is a time of crisis in Judah. It's around 739, 740 BC when King Uzziah died. You can read the account of King Uzziah's life and 2 Chronicles 26, and we also find out in 2 Chronicles 26 that Isaiah was a historian who, and this may have been prior to his call as a prophet, where he chronicles and tracks and writes about the reign of Uzziah. And that was quite a time in the nation. Unlike his father, King Uzziah began as a good king. He came to the throne at 16 and he reigned for 50 years. He reigned over the southern kingdom and it was a time of national prosperity. It was a time of kingdom expansion. It was a time of victory and conflict and war with their, their neighbors and their enemies. It was the closest that the nation came to being restored to the national glory they experienced during the reign of Solomon. Uzziah was a good king, but he was a good king gone bad. He didn't finish well. He was a great king whose reign ended with a great fall. At the height of his prosperity and seeking to exalt himself, he commits a terrible act of sacrilege. He goes into the temple 
And he grabbed the utensils that were used for burning incense. And he attempted to then go into the temple and burn incense. But kings don't do that. They're not anointed for that task. Priests do that task. They are anointed for that task and set apart. And so the priest comes, Azariah, courageously and bravely, the most successful king, most powerful man since Solomon, has entered in and trying to burn incense. And the priest, Azariah, along with 80 other priests, oppose him and confront him and don't allow him to go further. And Uzziah is filled with rage and God immediately sends judgment upon the king. And leprosy breaks out beginning on his forehead and covers his entire body. And he remained a leper until his death. Trying to exalt himself, full of himself, God humbles him and he dies unclean. And for Isaiah, this is a picture of the nation. They have forgotten the God who has prospered them. They have forgotten the God who has given them victory in battle. And they have begun worshiping other gods. Placing their hope somewhere else. And in that national crisis, Isaiah is in the temple and he sees the Lord. Now there, the first use of Lord in our passage here is capital L, then lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, a, a, a traditional spelling. It's a, not a name here, it is the title, Adonai. It is the title that means the sovereign one. As Uzziah has fallen and died, God reveals himself to Isaiah as the king who is the sovereign one on the throne. There's an immediate contrast in the vision of Isaiah. And then what does he see? He sees angelic beings around this seated sovereign one. And it says that they are standing above the Lord, their Yahweh. They're standing above him. Why is that? Well, it's not that they are exalted above him. It's that the true sovereign is seated and they're waiting for his command. That's the image that we have of these, these seraphim. Seraph means burning one. And then the im is the, the plural. They're the burning ones. And there's this picture of them around the throne of God. And they are hovering in constant motion. Their wings are moving. And then there's other wings. There's a total of six wings. Two wings, they're covering their eyes. And then two wings, they're covering their feet. These angelic beings, they cannot look directly at God, but... They're awaiting his bidding. And so they cover their feet. Your, your feet, it's a, it's a symbol of your path, the direction you're going to take. Don't turn your foot to the right or to the left. And these beings are so committed to the sovereign one that they're just waiting for his instructions. So they cover their feet as a symbol of their submission to him. And what are they saying? Saying, holy, holy Holy, this is their song. This is what God wants Isaiah to know, to feel, to be overwhelmed with. Divine 
holiness. God intends for humans to imitate him in holiness, that those who would be redeemed, that would grow in holiness, but we must always maintain that even in glory, when the saints are in heaven and they can no longer sin, they will not have the same degree of holiness as God. And this is what Isaiah is overwhelmed with. Holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times. It's a, it's a, a use of Hebrew to point out a superlative or totality. We're getting a picture that somehow divine holiness can be glimpsed, but it's truly beyond comprehension. And so it requires the super superlative song of the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yahweh, a host. Now, when I say holy, I recognize that holiness may come with baggage for uh, some of us here today. Maybe you're a student or a young person, and you're thinking, holiness comes later when I need to be a responsible adult. But right now, I want to have some fun. Or maybe you come from a, a church background where holiness was so limitedly defined by do's and don'ts and by mere externals that it doesn't make sense that these angelic burning ones are surrounding the throne of God, yelling, holy, holy, holy. Holiness may come with baggage, but this passage helps us. Rob Davis points out a couple things that we learn about holiness just from this passage alone. Holiness is something that is extraordinary. And by that, it's a simple observation that here these sinless beings, when they are in the presence of God's throne, they cover their eyes because they cannot behold him directly, as if it's staring directly into the sun. Holiness is something that's thrilling. They are singing back and forth a song of response and delight. It's not a matter of that they are commanded to sing. We're getting a picture that this is just what comes out of these seraphim. They must sing this song before the throne of God. Then we see that holiness is something that is, and in Ralph Davis's term, aggressive. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. And glory and holiness are, are connected, especially we see that in the Old Testament. One way of putting it is that God's glory is his holiness revealed. When God manifests his holiness, it's often in the glory cloud. And what does it say about the, the glory of God, his, his attributes, his godness? Well, it's going to, it's going to fill the whole earth. As Ralph Davis put it, holiness is not some tame, docile, dormant, reclusive quality of God. 
that is going to be on display throughout the whole earth. Lastly here, there's probably more we could say, but just a couple things. Holiness is something alarming. As Isaiah sees the Lord, we'll see in a second, he looks at himself and he sees nothing but uncleanness. And not just uncleanness in the temple ritual sense, just to his core, moral uncleanness. It's alarming because if you view God's holiness, you see a God of perfect moral purity, perfect in every way. Many people have tried to define holiness as we see it in this passage. One, put it this way, it's all that makes God who he is, that which makes him not man. Another has said, it's God's total and unique moral majesty. Another has said, holiness is the awe-inspiring majesty of the godness of God. And here in the seraphim, we see the proper response to such a revelation is that they are singing the praises of this God. And it's instructive for us in our worship. Worship is not a matter of just getting the right words in our mouth and just repeating holy, holy, holy again. No, worship is is to come from the heart. We are to worship in spirit and in truth. And how do you do that? Well, God has revealed himself in the world around us. And through that, we could see his attributes. And then in his word, he has especially revealed himself in such a way that we can understand his will and see his character and his nature more clearly. So we go to his word and we behold him in it. And then we respond in praise. But notice that Isaiah has trouble joining the song of the seraphim. Why is that? In verses 4 through 5, he's overwhelmed by his sin. Here he is. The vision is that he's in the temple. He's in the place where Uzziah fell. And he sees the Lord exalted and on high but he's unable to join the song. The entire structure around him is shaking and quaking. And then it's filled with smoke as if there's been a veil now put up between Isaiah and the Lord because Isaiah is sinful. As he sees God's holiness, he's aware of his filthiness. It's a terrifying experience. So what is the first thing that comes out of Isaiah's mouth in verse 5? Woe is me. Now it was part of the prophet's ministry to pronounce judgment against those in rebellion against God. And they would begin with oracles of woe. But here, Isaiah points the woe at himself. See, the reason why I'm I'm convinced that chapter 6 is his call to ministry is that he's arranged the material in such a way that in chapter 5, as he's summing up his his message, he gives six woes against God's people. 
six words of judgment, condemning them for their, their disobedience, condemning them for exalting in things and not God, condemning them for their idolatry, saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And then now, if you're reading from chapter one to chapter six, the final, the seventh, the completion of the woes he aims for himself. Woe is me. I am lost. I am lost. Older translations say undone. The sense of completely losing all bearings, all sense of place and security, trembling. Could you imagine what the experience is like and maybe sensitive to what, what you have gone through, but being in a, a terrible vehicle accident and then coming to and being surrounded by, by airbags and, and broken glass and an overturned vehicle and just, you'd say, I'm lost. Where, what happened? Think of that a million times more. This is Isaiah's experience. And what does he say? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, surrounded by a people of unclean lips. He says that everyone around me is, is, is filthy before God, and their lips are unclean. But Isaiah, the prophet, places himself at the seat of the chief of sinners among God's people. I am a man of unclean lips. Why the lips? Well, they're meant to be the, the instrument of worship. And as a prophet, it would be the instrument of his vocation. But he sees himself to be unworthy to enter the presence of God and offer worship. He sees himself unworthy because of his sin to speak for God. But why lips? I mean, when you think about the human, you think what part of the human is most sinful? Maybe, maybe you think about your eyes. And to your great shame, you say, I, I sin with my eyes and I can't stop sinning with my eyes. I, I look at things I should, should not. I know I should not. Maybe it's your, it's your mind, you might say. My, my mind, I, I think evil thoughts and wrong things. Maybe you say it's your hands, and with your hands you have harmed others and committed violence. You say, my hands are the most sinful part of me. Probably someone here, you might say, my stomach, it's my appetite. I have no self-control. I indulge in what I eat and I over-drink. I can't control myself. I sin over and over again with my consumption. But Jesus teaches that it's from the mouth that makes us unclean. In Matthew 12, he says, it's not what goes past the lips and into your stomach that makes you unclean. It is what comes out of the mouth and through the lips that demonstrates that there's still sin in your heart. That there remains the presence of corruption 
Remember, James says that if you could manage not to sin with your mouth, you could be nearly perfect. He says your tongue there behind your lips, like a small rudder that turns an entire ship, like a small flame that sets a forest ablaze. Here, in view of God's holiness, Isaiah is overwhelmed by his sin. And as Sinclair Ferguson put it, when we view God's holiness, all self-deception is challenged. All self-deception is challenged. Isaiah is not able to compare him to himself to others. No, in seeing God's holiness, he sees his sin for what it is. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. Robert Murray McShane once said, in my heart lies the seeds of every known sin. I'll never forget the first time I heard that quote. It was from uh, a pastor of mine, and I was in seminary, and he was meeting with a group of ministry interns who were all seminarians preparing for ministry. And it had been a, a rough year or so around the seminary community. Uh, one of the local pastors that many of us were part of a, a certain church uh, had a very disgraceful fall from ministry. And then a seminary professor had, been fall, had fallen and been disgraced and removed from his position at the seminary. And so we went, we're meeting with our pastor, and he was giving us comfort and pointing us to the gospel, and we were seeking advice, saying, we don't want to go down that path. Help us. And the first thing that he said was this quote, in my heart lies the seeds of every known sin. It wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting him to say, do this, don't do this, do this, in his first acknowledgement was, woe is me, but for the grace of God. And I said to myself, do you really mean that? That every vile, disgusting, disgracing, shameful sin is every known sin. The seeds are in our hearts. Overwhelmed by sin. Then the passage here for the moment resolves with Isaiah overwhelmed by grace. We want to be people of grace. We want to extend grace to the lost. We want to lead with grace. And to lead with grace means upholding God's holiness, telling sinners about their sin. Because unless you see holiness and unless you understand how sinful we are, you don't see how great grace is. But seeing the holiness of God, it deepens our awareness of the blessing of forgiveness, one has put it. Remember what Jesus said? Those who've been forgiven much, love much. Now, it's not just verses 6 and 7 that is the, the display of God's grace to Isaiah for us. 
we see the initiative of heaven throughout the entire passage. Verses 2 to 3, God reveals himself to Isaiah. As E.J. Young put it, Isaiah did not see God because he was more spiritually attuned than others. He saw God because God had revealed himself to him. And then in verses 4 through 5, what we're just considering, it is not Isaiah who comes to God under the burden of his sin, recognizing sin. He first has to see the vision of God, and God convicts him of his sin. It is God who convicts Isaiah and shows him his filth. And then, verses 6 and 7, it is God who cleanses Isaiah. The one who shows him his filthiness provides his cleansing. So look back at verse 6. What happens in verse 6? Isaiah is undone, and then one of the seraphim flies over to him. And what does it say? Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, whether it was actually the Day of Atonement or not, this certainly would have pointed Isaiah to the Day of Atonement. Because on that day, we read in Leviticus 16 that the offering was brought for sin and it was burnt over coals. And then those coals were then taken by the priest to burn incense as he was making his annual trip into the Holy of Holies. Then sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And so for Isaiah, he's, he's getting a sense of, of just in this symbolic action, the coal touching his lip, purging, cleansing of what God is doing, but God doesn't leave it there. The God of the Bible, he, he makes his gospel clear. He makes it clear for us. We, we hear the gospel, and then he gives us baptism and the, the cup and bread so that we can see it, taste it, feel it. But he doesn't just give us the, the, the cup and the bread and baptism. He gives us words of explanation so we know what they are pointing us to. And he does so here in the same way with Isaiah. It's not just the action of the seraphim. The seraphim then tells Isaiah, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Alec Matir points out there are four things that are happening here. First, in the touching of the lips, God is ministering to Isaiah at the point of his confessed need. And then we see in this, there's an instant effect. That's the second thing. Because there's two verbs there. This is, has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away. Has touched, is taken away. They are coordinate, perfect verbs. As soon as one happened... The other happens also. The third thing is that we see that God goes beyond cleansing his lips to the point of addressing Isaiah's guilt. Your guilt is taken away. And the fourth thing, your sins are atoned. The price is paid. To atone means to cover. God covers the guilt out of free grace. God provides atonement, a covering from his own 
judgment, and wrath. A price has been paid. There's been something that was on the altar that has been sacrificed. And here's the coals from that altar. What's the immediate effect from this? It's verse 8. We didn't read it. But if you just look at the beginning of it, what does Isaiah say? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying. I heard the voice of the Lord saying. The immediate effect is reconciliation. See, up until this point in the vision, Isaiah only hears the song of the seraphim. And then the coal comes and touches his mouth. And the seraphim explains to him what has happened. But now that he is cleansed and his guilt has been taken away, now he's in communion with the Lord and he hears the Lord's voice. Oh, you have to be so careful how we speak about the God of the Old Testament, don't we? I encourage you, read your Bibles and read the Old Testament. And be careful of those who would discourage you in doing that. No, we must know that he is a God who is not to be trifled with. And that when we come to this God here in Isaiah 6 and throughout the Old Testament, what do we see? We see that he is the ultimate sovereign. He could do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. We see that he is incomprehensibly holy. You cannot bring him down to your level. He is completely other. But if that's all you say about the God of the Old Testament, you are not telling the whole story. He is the sovereign, holy God who is rich in grace. He cleanses the unclean and provides an offering of atonement for the guilty. How does the Holy One of Israel make atonement for sinners? Well, you don't have to hold your place there but in Isaiah, but would you turn with me to John chapter 12? John's Gospel in the New Testament, John chapter 12. If you're using a Bible in the Purack, it's on page 899, I believe. John chapter 12. Beginning in the second half of verse 36, look there with me. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then John goes on to comment about Jesus' ministry. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and this is our passage next week. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And then John goes on with a further comment. Verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? Christ's glory. When did he see the glory? It was Isaiah 6. 
Isaiah, when he saw the true king, he saw Jesus. And unlike Uzziah, Jesus is king and priest. Uzziah tried to exalt himself as king priest. And Jesus, as the true king priest, humbled himself. The true sovereign got off his throne and took on flesh and came to rescue sinners. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the thrice holy God. And he is the one who made atonement for the unclean. So Isaiah could say this. He could say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Jesus sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the burning coal that cleansed my lips came from the altar of his cross. The Holy One of Israel quenched the fire of God's judgment with his own blood. And he did it for me. No, as Isaiah is propelled into his ministry, he goes beginning with the song of heaven, hearing the seraphim sing, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But now in glory, Isaiah has heard the rest of the song. That's just the first verse what the seraphim were singing. There's more. There's more stanzas. We hear the rest of the song in Revelation. Where angelic beings are before the throne. Singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and wealth. And wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne. And to the lamb. Be blessing and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we may think that we want to say, show us your holiness, let us see your holiness, but Lord, we know that it is more than we could handle. We say, woe is us. Those who know the truth and yet still we find pockets of rebellion and sin in our hearts and lives and on our lips. Oh Lord, would you have mercy on us, the holy God. May we not be deceived by our sin May we come before you because there is nowhere else where we can turn for cleansing. There's no atonement that we can make for ourselves. There's nothing else that we can do to remedy our guilt but to sit at your throne and to trust in the one who gave his blood in our place. May Christ be exalted in our hearts. May Christ be exalted in our minds. May Christ be exalted on our lips. We ask his name. Amen.